0: The Economist.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Today's show is something a bit different. It's a book's takeover. At Christmas time, I love to wind down with a good book and catch up on my to-read list and how alarmingly long it's going during the year. <laughs> and it seems that so do you. One of the paper's most popular sections this year has been The Economist Reads. In it, our correspondents, our editors and our producers write about what to read to understand topics as diverse as Indigenous Australians, and battles and dementia. And as the year comes to a close, we're bringing you ideas about what to read to understand the time that we're living in today. Several of our correspondents and listeners will be recommending books that help them understand the moment that we're currently living through. And with me in the studio to discuss it all is Oliver Morton, our planetary affairs editor. Hi, Oli.
2: Hi, Ollie. It's great to be here.
1: So, tell me, what books have you been thinking back to this year?
2: Well, it's been a year when everyone's been talking about AI, and so I've been thinking about AI. And there are a number of very fine pieces of science fiction on the subject. There's obviously 2001 A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick with its strangely relatable murderous Sorry, spoilers, character Hal. Or there's The Life Cycle of Software Objects by Ted Chang, which is an absolutely wonderful novella about the stealthiness by which AI becomes something akin to and quite possibly actually a person. Or there's the famous Nightmare by Harlan Ellison, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, in which the AI Against spoiler, really doesn't like us very much. But the one that I, I'd like to talk to, one that I keep kept thinking about this year and went back to reread, is Queen of Angels by the science fiction author Greg Baer, which came out in 1990.
1: Okay, so give us a brief summary of the book and relating its themes and focus to today.
2: Well, I think Greg, who sadly died in 2022, I think he was actually setting out to write a book that defies brief summary. But there's an L.A police officer who's investigating what appears to be a horrible crime carried out by a poet. There's another poet trying to understand the first crime. There's a man who has developed a way of seeing inside people's minds, who is also involved in the same thing. There's a complex subplot on the island of Hispaniola. And there's also, most crucially for this point of view, the account of a space probe far away from Earth, that is looking at an alien world and beginning to ask itself questions that its makers had not intended it to ask. And it's that last bit of the story that's really remarkable. I think it's one of the greatest visions of what it might be for a computer, an artificial construct, to become self-aware that I think I've ever read.
1: Which I guess relates to the advent of ChatGPT
2: a little bit. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is really clever about Bears book is that much of it takes place with artificial agents, which are very human in the way that they speak, but it is accepted that they're not self-aware and what makes this one agent different and how that changes things at the end. And it also speaks to the book's other themes of how one becomes a person and how one becomes social. And it's a dark and somewhat difficult book in many ways. It is about a darkness in the human I don't know, maybe soul, and what it would be for AIs to start to understand that. It's a very challenging and very wonderful book.
1: Now, Ollie, you're far from alone in thinking about AI. We actually asked our listeners which books they would recommend that relate to the present zeitgeist. And those relating to AI had quite a strong showing. <laughs>
3: Hi, my name is Devin from Edwardsville, Illinois, and I listen to the intelligence. I'd like to recommend Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut, first published in 1952. It portrays a scenario where almost everyone's job is replaced by a machine. The only people left with a job that aren't employed by the government are working for the military, the managers, and the engineers who maintain the machines. I happened to pick this book up right around when ChatGPT got really popular, and the premise of the book sounds a lot like some of the fears people have around AI. I don't think that a result like Player Piano is in our near future, but I think it's definitely a better read with Chad GPT in the back of your mind.
1: Oli, what do you think? Have you read the book?
2: Yeah, I have read it, and it's a fine book. It's a very funny book. It's not as good as Vonnegut's later books. Also, the thing to remember is that, like so much science fiction, it's very much about the present. It's about the life that Vonnegut was leading as a public affairs writer, a press release writer for GE, General Electric, at that time. And so it's really, there's a certain sort of madman's vibe about it, but it's a very entertaining book. As Devin says, it's not the way the future is going to be, but it's a way part of the past really was. And sometimes I think you can only understand the past by understanding what futures it was thinking about.
1: Ollie, do you think that books about AI are limited, especially historical ones, back when we didn't really have the language or the understanding to engage with it in the way that we do now?
2: Yes, and I think books about people are limited too for similar reasons. The now very disdained science fiction editor John W. Campbell used to ask his writers to, when they were writing about an alien, he said he wanted something that thought as well as a man but not like a man, and AIs are like that. In science fiction, I think AIs are very like aliens. They can be a sort of like unknowable other. You could go all the way to Stanislaus Lem, the Solaris. But I think it's just very hard to write about the interiority of something else in a way that makes it comprehensible and yet alien. It's one of the things I like about Greg Bear's book. I think he has a, he has a shot at it.
1: Next up, we'll be moving away from AI a little bit, but keeping with the science theme. So we've had a suggestion from Charlotte Howard, who is the co-host of Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics.
4: So I recommend John McPhee's The Control of Nature, which was published in 1989. And McPhee writes, as the title suggests, about humans who are trying to tame nature in some way, about humans who are trying to exist in places they should not, or where they are under some sort of threat from acts of nature. And so he writes about trying to direct the mighty Mississippi River, about trying to cool lava from a volcano in Iceland, about dealing with the erosion of rocks from mountains in California. And in each case, you see the enormous effort employed in trying to control nature, as the title suggests. And that means human ingenuity, financial resources, infrastructure. But fundamentally, McPhee is writing about human's stubborn conviction that man can bend nature to his will. And he shows that in trying to control nature, human actions precipitate other natural events, which man in turn tries to control. And it's this never-ending endeavor and arguably a losing one. And it's obvious probably why I chose this book and why it feels relevant now, because of course the world is now dealing with climate change That effort is not just about reducing emissions, but adapting to the reality of warming temperatures. So you have this man-made phenomena of a warming planet that is precipitating an enormous number of other changes in the natural world that affect humans, who are in turn trying to propose all kinds of other projects to deal with those natural changes. So in New York, where I am, the Army Corps of Engineers now has a 500-page plan for a system of storm surge gates and flood walls, etc., to try to protect New York from rising sea levels and increasingly violent storms. You have increasingly serious proposals about solar geoengineering, which include things like putting powders made of aluminum or diamonds into the stratosphere to reflect more sunlight from the Earth. So we're now in a situation in which man, having altered the natural world on a planetary scale will need ever more elaborate ways to make the world habitable. And McPhee is fundamentally both admiring of humans' will to control nature and skeptical at their chances of success. And I think that points to something that I'm always struck by and which I've discussed with Oliver, which is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding about climate change and nature, I think, in the way... People use language to describe climate change because people talk about saving the planet, which misunderstands the problem. The Earth survives regardless. It's human life on planet that is at risk. And I think McPhee's book is a good illustration of both why the urge to control nature is fundamentally hubristic and also fundamentally human.
1: Ollie, have you read the book?
2: Oh, yes, I have. It's a terrific book. I like it very much. And I think Charlotte captures something wonderful about McPhee's vision in the book, which is that he's, at the same time, admiring of these engineers who are trying to keep the Mississippi flowing in the direction they want it to be flowing and to keep the rocks of the San Gabriel Mountains at the top, not the bottom, and to cool lava flows in in Iceland. He admires this. He also obviously thinks that it's, to some extent, fantastical, hubristic, even absurd, But he accepts that these people don't really feel that they have a choice. And there's something a bit Sisyphean about it. You have to imagine the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers pushing back that river with a smile on their face, because what else can they do?
1: Now, Charlotte says that you both discussed the fact that it's not the planet that needs saving so much, but humanity.
2: Well, I think that humankind is, to me, the prime ethical Thing at risk here. But I also think there's another point that looking back at McPhee's book brought out for me, which is it was still possible then to really talk about control of nature as though nature was an outside different thing, whereas the nature which is now endangering people with its storms, its floods, its droughts, it's no longer, as it were, natural. It's a changed nature, and it's interesting to read this book in contrast with or as a supplement to a more recent book by another excellent New Yorker writer, Elizabeth Colbert, called Under a White Sky, in which she points out, she actually talks about the resemblance to McPhee's book, and she says, you've got to remember that since 1989, what people mean by nature and what people mean by control has changed very deeply. And her book is a less straightforward narrative, but it's still got that same sense of what else would they do, but am I happy with them doing it?
1: I can't help but feel that climate has taken a bit of a backseat this year thanks to the outbreak of several different wars. And next up, we're bringing in someone that listeners will be very familiar with this year thanks to the outbreak of several wars across the world, Listeners will know Shashank Joshi, the Economist's Defence Editor, who's joining us to weigh in. Hi, Shashank.
3: Hi, Ori. I'm very pleased to be introduced as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and fulfilling <laughs> my usual festive role here. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I get to speak for climate. You can do war. <laughs> we could get Natasha on to do pestilence. But well, I think she's Three busy. and four, it's not bad.
1: <laughs> now tell us, what are some of the themes that you've been writing about this year?
3: I've been thinking a lot about global shipping just now because of all the attacks in the Red Sea. I just this morning picked up the Twilight War by David Christ, which is a fantastic account of the tanker war between Iran and Iraq and U.S. efforts to try to protect shipping. It's a really, really interesting period we could learn a lot from. I've been thinking quite a lot about intelligence, watching the sort of Russian-American intelligence contest play out in the shadows. There's a fantastic book by a former KGB officer who defected called Viktor Shamov, Tower of Secrets, which is all about his role in the KGB as a technical officer. But I think the thing that's dominated for me is this question of what do we learn from the wars we are observing? What do we take for lessons as to how future wars will be fought, how they should be fought. I wrote a special report on this in the summer on lessons from Ukraine, on what we understand about the tactics that we're seeing. And then, of course, given the events of October 7th, Hamas's massacre in Israel, I've also thought a lot about surprise in war, the role of intelligence, strategic surprise, something that was already on my mind from February 2022, when we saw many countries predict Russia's invasion, but also many other countries, including Ukraine itself in some respects, completely surprised by the events that then swamped them in such in such misery and violence.
1: And are there any books that foreshadowed those themes?
3: Yes. I, I think the war that just conveys the most about these themes and and is so rich and and still understudied in many ways is the Yom Kippur War. This was the Arab-Israeli conflict of 1973, fought between Israel on the one hand, Syria, Egypt, and, and other Arab armies on the other. It was a, a seminal moment in the Middle East. And I think the, there are many books on this. The one I'd pick out is unimaginatively titled The Yom Kippur War by Abraham Rabinovich. It was first published in 2004 And it's just an excellent historical account of that conflict. It draws upon archives that were unavailable to people in the years after the war. It draws on interviews. And the war is still fascinating because it's within the memory of many Israeli official soldiers who were there, who experienced it. It hasn't faded from memory uh, so the human side is there, the, but it's also supplemented by serious archival material that's available from the declassified material in the United States, in the Middle East and in other countries, which is the sort of sweet spot for historians in some ways.
1: And so I think it's clear how this relates to the attacks of October 7th, but is it more than that?
3: It's much more than that. The surprise aspect is so important, though, because um, it's it's not just that Israel was surprised in 1973 and surprised again this year. It was the nature of that surprise. The resonance is so remarkable, right? The over-reliance on technological means of surveillance. Back in 73, the Israelis had scattered these little battery-powered electronic intelligence devices in Egypt, and they assumed, hey, we've got this fantastic listening network in Egypt. It'll tell us, if anything, is going to go wrong. Did they listen to it? They did not listen to it. Why did they not listen to it? This is the really interesting part because it clashed with their political conception of what they thought the enemy would do and what they thought the enemy was capable of. They had contempt for the Arab armies. They thought these guys are never going to be capable of complex buccaneering, combined arms action raging across the Suez Canal And they were in the same way that Hamas was able to use gliders and drones and snipers and assault detachments to penetrate unbelievably far into Israel on October 7th. So I think that question of strategic surprise and its relationship to the cultural assumptions you have about your adversary are fascinating. I also think there are a lot of tactical lessons that connect directly to Ukraine.
1: Tell me a bit more about this.
3: Many of the debates people were having in 1973 were very similar to the ones we saw unfold last year. We saw Russian tanks destroyed by the thousands over the last 18 months. And the natural response is to say, well, this clearly shows the tank is obsolete. This clearly shows that drones are making tanks unsurvivable on the modern battlefield. I think there is something to that. But the same debate unfolded in October 1973 when Egypt's then radically new Soviet anti-tank missiles did similar damage to Israel's tank fleet. And everyone panicked and thought, my goodness, our tanks are useless. What have we just done? Even the US Army looked at this and thought, my goodness, we're going to have to change everything about our force structure. And then the Israelis adapted very fast, unbelievably fast by the standards of military adaptation. They started implementing what we now call combined arms tactics, using dismounted infantry alongside the tanks to try to suppress the Egyptian anti-tank squads. They used smoke screens to cover their movements. They put mortars on tanks to try to fire them at places where they thought Egyptian anti-tank squads might be hiding. And this was a vital tactical lesson that the U.S. Army took out of that conflict. The U.S. Army at that time was disheveled and humiliated from Vietnam, And they reformed the entire force, drawing many of these tactical lessons from Yom Kippur. And part of the result was the force that eventually performed very well in the first Gulf War against Iraq in 1991.
1: So despite being about a war in the 70s, the book reveals a lot about what's happening today and how to look at it.
3: Well, I mean, my, my feeling is there's wars we write a lot about and focus on a lot, and there's wars we ignore. And I think... Yom Kippur is, is not ignored. It's studied widely and is very interesting. Yom Kippur was a seminal moment of military learning, not just for the Israelis, but for so many armies around the world, in the same way I think Ukraine is proving to be today. It makes me realize we shouldn't just look at recent examples when we think about war. And I still feel there's all this incredible knowledge out there about these huge wars that shaped the region that we haven't really mindfully
1: Coming up, we'll be looking at the theme of democracy with the
0: upcoming elections around the world. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S., If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Okay, it's time
1: to bring in our next suggestion. This time from our senior digital editor and the editor of Economist Reads, Brooke Unger. Brooke enjoys the classics and has a recommendation that has truly stood the test of time. First published in 1622.
5: Well, the book I recommend, it's not really a book, it's a play. It's Othello by Shakespeare. The reason I'm recommending it is it struck me that one way of looking at it could be as an allegory of what's going on in America at the moment. There are three principal characters in Othello. There's Othello, the black general who is in service to the Venetian state. There is his wife Desdemona, a very beautiful well-born young lady, and there's Iago, who is often seen as one of the personifications of evil in literature. Iago is resentful of Othello for passing him over for promotion, and so what he resolves to do is to poison Othello's relationship with his wife, make Othello believe that Desdemona is being unfaithful to him. Othello comes to believe this, and kills his wife, and kills himself in the end. So it's a tragedy, and (laughs) the reason this rather personal-sounding tragedy struck me as being relevant to what's going on in America is you could see each of the main characters as analogues for the main characters in an American drama in this election year. So Othello, well-meaning, but in some ways naive, is in this scenario America itself, powerful, naive, warlike Iago in this scenario is Trump, an extremely cynical person with no sense of morals who feels uh, resentful and drips poison into Othello's ear, untrue poison that inflames Othello against his wife. And in this case, Desdemona could be viewed in some ways as American democracy, which at Iago's prompting, Othello duly strangles. It was for this reason that I thought, well, there's a sort of a neat parallel, in a sense, between the plot of the play and some of the themes of the play and what could happen in America this year. I suppose you could read Othello, although it isn't meant, I think, primarily as a political play, you could read it as kind of a warning.
1: So, Ollie, how do you feel Othello relates to the strangling of American democracy? Do you buy Iago
2: as Trump? I think that's quite a radical reading from Brother Brooke there. I'm not sure I would ever have thought to see it that way. It does, though, bring out some interesting aspects of the play. And it's true that the great tragedy is the tragedy of Desdemona and her love, which is always good. And I think it's, for me, unique among the Shakespearean tragedies in that it's the only one that, and this may actually be a flaw in it as a tragedy, but it's probably a good aspect of it as a political allegory, if we are to take it in that way, which is that sense of the inevitable. I mean, there's a sense in which true tragedy should be utterly inevitable. We should know that everyone is doomed. But almost every time I see Othello, I want to say, don't be so stupid, man. Don't trust him. He's obviously a bad one. No, 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 no. The handkerchief, the handkerchief. And so every time I feel, I, I actually feel that it could go the other way every time. And in that, I think it's a very powerful message for us for next year. I think I find Iago ER as Trump though a little difficult because. Iago reveals himself in such an utterly un-Trumpian way. He doesn't reveal himself through that weird, mangled, fantastical syntax that never fully comes to the end of a sentence that Trump is so famous for using. He's incredibly incisive in what he says about the world and himself. So in that respect, I don't think that he makes a particularly good stand-in for Trump.
1: Now, this theme of democracy has also been picked up by our listeners. Here's one. Sam.
6: I'm from Atlanta, currently live in Brooklyn. I'd like to recommend It Can't Happen Here, written by Sinclair Lewis. It's a novel published in 1935, a time when the world saw a global rise of demagoguery. The central theme of the book revolves around the rise of fascism, populism, the fragility of democratic institutions, and the potential for authoritarianism in the United States. The story is set in a fictionalized America and follows the rise of a charismatic senator, a con man who consolidates power and popularity through exploiting the fears of crime, sex, a liberal media, and by instigating a congressional coup d'etat. Sound familiar? Well, that's why I find this book to be so relevant today. Its message serves as a warning against the rise of populism, against strongmen leaders, and the erosion of democratic norms. It Can't Happen Here delves into the fragility of democracy, the manipulation of public opinion, and the dangers of political complacency. It's a very thrilling page-turner.
1: Shashank, do you have any views on this?
3: I haven't read the book by Sinclair Lewis, but I do recall the flurry of interest in these kind of literary anti-fascist warnings back in 2016 and then again in 2020 during January 6th. And in a way, it's hard for any of these allegories or historical books to live up to the absurdity and extremity of the political circumstances of our time. I mean, what author could truly conceive of characters who, as their face melts, hold emergency press conferences at four seasons total landscaping, while their tyrannical boss attempts to salvage his hold on power amid people with horns rampaging through the legislative branch. If you wrote all of that down, the publisher would write you a letter back saying, very nice, a little bit too wild, try again, tone it all down, please.
2: I think there's also an interesting point about it can't happen here, which is that no one ever suggests that after all this, the guy, I think he's Windrip, the the president, will get re-elected. That's, I think, one of the the truly remarkable things. So it's interesting. This went on to be... uh, I mean, Sinclair Lewis was a big influence on later science fiction through this book. And there's actually a, a recently deposed dictatorial-type president in the Greg Bear book, Queen of Angels, I was talking about earlier, or in the works of Robert Heinlein. So this idea of the weird, vaguely messianic, troubled American demagogic leader was bubbling around in the consciousness, slouching towards the 2016 elections for quite some time.
1: That re-election could be on the horizon nonetheless. In the coming year, there are major elections around the world, not just in the U.S., it made me think a little bit about my own book recommendation.
2: Well, that's great. Tell us about that then, Norway? Right?
1: My recommendation is a fiction novel. It is called A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo, and it came out in February 2023. I think it was actually deliberately released in the run up to Nigeria's elections. Ultimately, it's a story of two characters and their families, but it's set around an election. You've got one family that's quite powerful and another that's clearly been the victim of Nigeria's political system and is, by contrast, I would say powerless. But both of them end up being subject to this volatile world that is Nigeria's politics. And aside from being a really emotive story, I found it quite a stark reminder of just how elections are fought in many younger and less established democracies. The kinds of conflicts that you typically find playing out in this book and in democracies like Nigeria are often the kind that I think democracies in the West can take for granted.
2: So what brought you to the book? I think you told me you read it after the election.
1: Yes, I did actually read it after the election, but it was recommended to me by someone who knew that I was quite passionate about Nigeria's election in 2023. There were so many allegations of malpractice following the election and lots of issues around how the votes were transmitted and questions of injustice. And I think that when things like this happen, in the aftermath, people wonder why Nigerians don't protest or fight back in some kind of way. But the way that this book unfolds, and not to ruin it, but it is quite sad, I think really captures the kind of despair that after an election that you fought so hard for, you can still feel so powerless even when there
2: is such blatant corruption. And I assume you think that's got a, a message well beyond Nigeria itself?
1: Yes, that's my argument. I think that There's going to be a lot of focus on America's election, but I think we should look very closely at the other countries that are holding elections, calling them democratic elections, but actually what's going on is something quite different. In general, I think people are just celebrating the amount of elections that we have this year as a win for democracy, but it's not just about quantity, it's also about quality. And I think Nigeria offers a case in point example of how on the surface you might think that this was A relatively peaceful election, that there was a handover of sorts, that an African country in a region which is especially susceptible to military coups is still able to hold relatively peaceful elections. But actually, books like these, even though it is fiction, why I think it was able to really have the impact that it had is because it captures a reality that's much more grim, something that shows that what happens in the political sphere and the decisions that are made that really define Nigeria's politics are often not made at the ballot box, but in the living rooms of the powerful.
2: it's very interesting. I think we often have, and rightly have, a view of seeing democracy as an all-encompassing goal and good thing. And within that context, which is... (laughs) Vital context. Sometimes failing to understand the ways in which democracy plays out in specific political situations in different places. And I think we've talked quite a lot about the fact there are 70-odd elections coming up in the world next year. It's really worth remembering that although they will all be in some ways the same, and people will, under some level of freedom or duress, choose a leader, at the same time they will all be fundamentally different because all electorates and nations will be different.
1: Next up, we have Alexandra Switch-Bass, our culture editor, who's recommending a book of her own.
2: What, you mean a book by Alexandra? No, sorry, <laughs> I mean, um, she has a recommendation. <laughs> I would recommend one, a book by Alexandra, if she could be troubled to write one.
7: <laughs> I recommend The Gathering Storm by Winston Churchill, which was published in 1948. Churchill is probably best known, of course, as a statesman, but he was also a painter and a very prolific writer. The Gathering Storm was the first volume of his larger work, The Second World War. It may have a pretty dry textbook title, but it has brilliant prose and fresh insights. The main argument of the piece is that appeasement of Germany by allies in the aftermath of the First World War set the scene for another conflict. He has some great lines like, the crimes of the vanquished find their background and their explanation, though not, of course, their pardon in the follies of the victors. The book has the intellectual sweep of a historian, but also the emotion of someone who participated firsthand. And it strikes me as a very relevant read because of everything that's happening today with Western nations debating how much to appease and stand up to authoritarian governments like Russia and China. We're seeing a debate play out in America, for example, about how much to fund um, and whether to continue funding the Ukrainian war effort. It's a very serious book, but an enjoyable read. Of course, Churchill wanted to be remembered most for his role in helping promote peace, not necessarily for his role as a wonderful historian and writer. But A Gathering Storm manages to sum him up as all of those.
1: Have either of you read the book?
3: I read it many years ago. And if you were looking for a book on the Second World War, it's not the one you would choose for historically authoritative judgment on the war as a whole. He wasn't able to discuss lots of things. The breaking of the Enigma Code at Bletchley Park, he couldn't discuss that. That wasn't revealed publicly until 1977. There isn't all that much in his series on the Pacific War. But he was the only leader of all those involved in the Second World War to have written a book like this. And it has all the strengths and weaknesses you'd expect. But one of the interesting things is also that he, being a politician who would return to frontline service, also had to make judicious Uh, choices about what to censor and what to reveal. And he removed some references to Dwight Eisenhower, who was running for the presidency. And so it's a really interesting case of a historian basically pulling their punches because they're going to be back in a position of political office.
1: So we've had several themes, AI, climate adaptation, war, democracy. Oli, any parting thoughts?
2: I I think that where this idea for a discussion came from was the thought that when we do a books of the year list, we always focus very strongly on the books that came out this year. And the idea that the most relevant books for this year are also the books that came out this year, uh, among other things, to anyone who has any experience of deadlines, publishers, etc., it seems kind of strange. So I, I really like the idea of going back and finding famous books like Churchill's, less famous books that have something to say, or even putting an entirely new reading on a classic that all of us know, like Othello. I think there's always a chance to, go back and you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you know you have a growing pile of to reads well let's add even more to those with all the past to reads not just the new ones and when you look at a new book ask yourself i wonder is there an old book that i'd rather read don't ask yourself
3: about this if i write another book next year though (laughs) i think ollie's exactly right um it, what I when I reflect on the books that I've learnt the most from, the ones I have that have most enriched my understanding, it's not the the sort of airport hardbacks. It's not the rushed jobs that come out to ride the wave of a news story. It's the ones where an academic or a journalist or a, or a scientist or someone has poured themselves and a significant chunk of their life into understanding something and really getting under the skin of something. And I think there's something really powerful to reach back and take out those examples as we've done today.
1: Well, thank you both very much for joining us and for sharing all your recommendations and opining on everyone else's.
2: <laughs> I'm sure our colleagues will thank us for that.
3: <laughs> thanks very much for having us, Oren.
2: Yeah, thanks very much indeed.
3: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com
4: forward slash bonds.